0: All right, well, verse 23, verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, which is whichever city they happen to be in, flee to another, for assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, it's actually contrary to what many believe, Jesus here grants permission for those who are persecuted to run away. How many are you okay with that? It's okay. The master said it was okay. Okay. If you are persecuted, and, and I know that, you know, from an eastern perspective to the western perspective, persecution is different. Uh, I don't mean that if somebody talks bad about you because you're a Christian, that you should flee to Arizona. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, have a little thicker skin than that, Uh, when we look at Scripture and we talk about persecution, uh, we usually mean that somebody's livelihood has been affected. Uh, Their body uh, has been affected. Um, Things like that. And uh, if those things are happening, then uh, Jesus grants permission to flee and uh, to avoid it at least as long as you can. Um, I believe that The condition of the world, uh, and I believe this because Paul's said this, that uh, in the last days, things will get worse and worse, that there will be a time where the believers cannot flee. They'll just have to face persecution. But until then, flee uh, until you cannot. Um, Jesus, uh, as we go through the Gospels, we know that on occasion, he evaded persecution, even death. You Remember, they were going to stone him. On two different occasions, and uh, he managed to get away from them, um, partly because it wasn't his time. But then when it comes time to the time appointed by his father, that is to atone for the sins of the world, it was setting his face as a flint to Jerusalem, and there was no turning back. He went there voluntarily. Uh, he went there having full knowledge of what was going to happen to him, and, uh, and he went uh, we know the story in Acts 9.25. Paul was in the city of Damascus preaching the gospel, and uh, the, the king there was seeking his life. And so by night, they stuffed Paul in this oversized basket, and they lowered him out of a window in the wall of the city. And then he escaped. Okay? But there were other times where Paul uh, refused to flee because of persecution. In fact, uh, when he was in Lystra, you remember... They, they stoned him, and they dragged his body out of the city. Some believe that he was dead. And it says the, the disciples gathered around him. Jesus, not Jesus, Paul got back on his feet, and he walked back in the city. He was like, is that all you got? <laughs> Bring the big guns, you know. And uh, it says that he stayed there that night, rested, and then left in the morning. And uh, so, you know, Acts 14 uh, not Acts 14, later on, uh, Jesus specifically told Paul, stay in Corinth, even though persecution was heating up. He says, I have many people in this city. They weren't yet saved, but Paul was to go get them. And so he didn't let Paul leave Corinth, even though there was going to be problems. So, you know, when it comes to the issue of persecution, at whatever level it might be, I think that really... Uh, prayer, godly counsel, wisdom, uh, all of those things should determine whether or not you stay or go. Because I, I truly believe that believers, when they're persecuted, it can, it can benefit the gospel. It can benefit the lives of those people in that community. And uh, so we shouldn't just flee. I think that we should pray, we should fast, we should seek God's face and let him decide. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's easy enough to understand, but then Jesus adds on this comment. He says, For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does he mean by when the Son of Man comes? D.A. Carson, uh, who probably you don't know, but he's actually one of the most competent Greek scholars in the world, he says that this verse is among the most difficult in the New Testament. And you thought it was easy before then, didn't you? <laughs> and then because of the difficulty, there's just this wide range of interpretations by various commentators. And depending on their theological de- uh, bent, you can pretty much predict what their interpretation will be. Okay? And, uh, and I have a theological bent, but I've tried to avoid it, uh, the temptation really to conform the text to my preconceptions about some of these things. Most commentators see the phrase, when the Son of Man comes, as really a specialized kind of phrase that always means the same thing and always always means, or is talking about, the same event or time in history. And they always mean a cosmic event. End times kind of stuff, mostly, but not all of it. But, you know, I love me some cosmic eschatological action. Okay, I love it. Uh, But I'm not confident uh, that that is actually what's happening here. Some believe that it always refers to when Jesus, in their language, came to judge the Jews for unbelief in 70 AD. That's when the Roman legions came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. They murdered countless Jews. They took uh, countless Jews as slaves, women and children included. Others believe that it has to do with the second coming, when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead at the end of time, and that he wasn't actually speaking directly to the 12 disciples, but disciples of all ages. Now, I personally think that he's talking to both, okay? Still others say that because Jesus did not know the day or the hour of his coming, he thought that the time was sooner than it actually was. He thought he would die, Uh, resurrect, ascend, and return before the disciples finished going through all the cities of Israel. I'm really not fond of that position. Uh, And and there are other views still, of course. You know, somebody's always coming up with something new. Uh, But they get more complicated as you go and more strained and and perhaps even far-fetched. So let me look at this with you, and I don't want to be real technical, but We've already been looking at the title, Son of Man, haven't we? The Son of Man. And we know that it is a specialized title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. But the question is, is the phrase itself specialized? When the Son of Man comes, is that phrase specialized? Uh, Sometimes the word for come uh, is a different word in the Greek when the phrase is used in other places, When the Son of Man comes, the the author will use one Greek word for for that, and then he'll use a different word at another time. And the grammar is always different for the two, which which makes it even more baffling to me. Uh, At other times, the phrase is better defined or qualified. For example, in Matthew 24, it says, When the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven. Well, that's a little more specific, isn't it? Uh, Another says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. And all of those references in Matthew 24 and then also in 25 definitely refer to a cosmic showdown with the God of glory. Okay? Um, And they're exciting. We'll get there someday. But here in the text, there's no such description or qualification. As Matthew 24 just says, when the Son of Man comes, if, there, if we are to assign kind of a qualification to it, it has to do with the number of cities uh, the apostles reach in advance of his coming. But it just doesn't seem to be technical. It just seems to be more casual. Also, the context doesn't demand that it refer to a cosmic event like the end of the world. And so perhaps the answer is just more practical. Uh, We believe in being pragmatic, right? I do, most of the time. It seems to me that verse 22, the verse before, is a concluding thought about persecution in general that occurs after Pentecost. Because it talks about the disciples being beaten in synagogues. It talks about them being brought before kings and governors. It never happened to the disciples prior to Pentecost. Ever happened. But it all happened later, right? It all happened later. And then it you know, beyond Pentecost, the text concludes with a comment about the end. Not the end of time, but the end of a person's life who was martyred for the faith. Those who endure to the end, that is, to death, he says, they will be saved. But verse 23 picks up where Jesus left off telling his disciples to only go to the Jews. Remember? Verse 5. And now he's referencing just the cities of Israel. And then he says, For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So so with that in mind, I think the phrase, before the Son of Man comes, has to do really with just a time and a place that Jesus assigned for them to meet up. That's what I think it means. Uh, uh, This would have been a necessary discussion because When he's done talking to them, chapter 11 says that they parted ways. Jesus went one way. Actually, the disciples went all different directions because they went out two by two. And then Jesus went a different direction to all the other cities in the area. So when and where did they plan on meeting up again? You get it? When and where? So I think Jesus is saying You guys need to make the best of your time and reach as many as you can as fast as you can because you'll not have time, you'll not have gone to all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man arrives at our predetermined location. Doesn't that sound very practical? sounds very easy to me. Uh, Or he could say, or before the Son of Man comes back to the place that we departed from, which is actually implied in Luke 9 verse 10. Same Sermon, if you will, same context. Now, some have said that Jesus is saying that he will actually catch up with the disciples on their mission before they reach all the cities in Israel. Now, I think that's possible, but how would he catch up to all of them? Because Mark says they went out two by two. How do you catch up to 12 men who scattered in six different directions? Besides, as Luke 9, verse 10 says, the disciples returned to a certain place he didn't catch up with them, you get it so all that to say I'm not sure Jesus is talking here about uh, as much as I would like him to be talking about cosmic events uh, I'm not sure he's doing it here I think it 's more practical just in regarding to meeting up again now if you prefer you know the cosmic interpretations more power to you uh, later on we can talk about the merits of all the positions uh, but we gotta, we got to move on. Amen? Jesus says, you guys need to hurry, and, uh, <laughs> and so do we. All right. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household, uh, I have no idea. why well, they translate Beelzebul as Beelzebub. It's nowhere Beelzebub anywhere in ancient literature. Uh, so, if I run into one of these translators, I'm going to ask. It's Beelzebul, and who is that? Well, the word literally means Lord of Flies. Lord of Flies. Uh, it comes from Second Kings chapter one verse two. And Beelzebul was an idol of Ekron, of the Philistines. Okay? But by the New Testament times, the Jews had associated Beelzebul with Satan as the prince of demons. So what do they call Jesus? They call him Satan. Call it slightly offensive. I think it's a little uncalled for, seeing that Jesus was going and healing all the sick, that he was having compassion at all. Uh, I don't recall that being an attribute of Satan or of the Pharisees. And yet, Jesus is called Belsable. It's crazy. But here, Jesus, what he's saying is, 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 if they've treated me poorly as the teacher, as the master, and, and they have treated him poorly, it's just going to get worse. He says, they're most definitely going to treat you poorly. But also, this, of course, depends upon whether or not the boys are like their teacher, like their master. If they mimic Jesus' preaching and and teaching, they'll certainly suffer the way he did. And, And if they avoid it, if they minimize or dilute the preaching, they're going to evade the kind of suffering persecution that Jesus faced. That's just the reality. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3:12 Paul said that persecution is for those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So don't worry about it. If you don't want to be persecuted, just don't desire godliness. Yeah. When you look at 2 Timothy 3:12, the context of the statement has to do with preaching the gospel to lost people. So that is in the text that is what defines godliness there. There's other ways to define godliness. But Paul says that in this particular context, godliness is preaching the gospel to the lost. And if you desire godliness in the way that the Bible defines it, you're going to get mistreated. You're going to get mistreated. I dare you, try it. See what happens. Just experiment with preaching repentance, Okay, of, of telling people that they're sinners, Uh, and they need to turn from their sin or they will suffer for eternity because of it. People love it. They love it. Jesus said, uh, the world hates me because I testify to them that their deeds are evil. So go testify to people their deeds are evil and uh, you will prove my point. (laughs) You will get abused. Now, of course, here in Western society, um, at least for now, we are insulated from the more extreme forms of persecution. We haven't seen, uh, at least I haven't seen, any beheadings of late for people that preach the faith. But if you preach like Jesus and the apostles, you, you're you going to suffer for it some way. Uh, you're going to risk your reputation, uh, you're going to uh, risk your friendships, And uh, but I don't believe that... There's a soul out there uh, that is worth losing in order to keep a friendship or a reputation. That's my position. Yeah. So that concludes the precautions uh, we should know about, they should know about in regard to proclamation. We should expect resistance and even persecution for preaching the gospel. But when persecution comes, we must persevere. Jesus says, therefore, not do not fear them For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you, there's not a period there. You guys can forgive me. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the rooftops. Now, that which was currently covered and hidden was the full identity of Christ and the gospel in its full. It's currently hidden, okay? Jesus was teaching his disciples all of these greater truths in private, but the time was coming for them to have their debut, if you will, and to take these things and make them all public, preaching from uh, the roofs. Now, of course, over there, they're flat roofs. Uh, What a great pulpit that would be. And, you know, the wild thing about the ancient cities is their corridors were narrow. And you could just go from one flat roof to the next, and you would just have captive audiences everywhere. You'd probably get stuff pitched at you, but uh, that would be kind of exciting. So, So these guys, like us, were to publicize all things pertaining to Christ and the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he has done for the sins of the world. And regardless of how people react, we must push through. We cannot be intimidated by them. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. A little perspective. Jesus requires that we fear the proper entity. There's two entities in the text. There's man, of course, Hopefully that's unbelieving man. And there's God. You see, man has the power to kill that which is temporal. That is, they can, they can kill our body. They, they have power over, we might say, biological life. But man, mankind has no power over the soul of another person. The soul is completely out of reach. It's out of reach. So Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of man. All he can do is kill your body. What do you mean, all he can do? (laughs) That seems like a lot, but not compared to what is eternal. You know, for perspective, Jesus says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, the word hell uh, is the Greek word Gehenna. It's not to be confused with the grave. Now, there are times when hell, it's a different word, and it's synonymous with just the grave. It's, that's not here. They should have just translated it Gehenna, so there's no confusion. Also, the one who has power over the soul is not to be confused with the devil, though it's happened frequently throughout history. Gehenna is not some place that Satan rules over. I mean, how many, how many have, have thought that, that, that hell is some place where, you know, the demons and Satan are there tormenting people? We, we, we have that image in our mind because of uh, various uh, forms of art. Uh, you've all watched Warner Brothers uh, cartoons, you know, uh, the rest. Uh, but Scripture says that Gehenna was created by God for the purpose of confining Satan and his angels, and punishing them forever. Matthew 25, verse 41. That's Jesus' words. Okay, So these books uh, today that are being sold, you know, 30 seconds in in hell, and then you read some of it, and they talk about what they saw was demons tormenting people. Well, that's your first clue that uh, they did not go to hell and see it because it doesn't align with what the Scriptures say. Uh, That's a place where demons and Satan go to suffer for evil and wickedness. Yeah. So don't confuse this. So it's not Satan that we should fear. Jesus is saying it's the Lord who has charge over all things. Now we should be wise in regard, of course, to the wiles of the devil, but we should never fear him we should never fear those who are under his charge, whether they're human or they're demonic. We should fear the Lord, which should motivate us not to avoid hell, but to preach the gospel. That's the point. Okay? And Jesus goes on, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So this is the whole point, is the believer is of great value to the the Father, a far greater value than the sparrows. And if he watches after the sparrows, he's going to watch after us. He's taken the time, as it were, to number, to know all the hairs on our head. Okay, for some of us, that's not too much. But he still loves you just as much as the hairy person, okay? If if we're mistreated, it, or if we're martyred for the faith, God has He has secured our soul. We can't forget that, that the, that the believer's spirit is tethered to God who is in heaven. And so when we die, we will we will be drawn into what we're tethered to. Yeah. Look at what Paul says. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, that's demonic hosts, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is coming from a man who suffered some of the most extreme forms of persecution, and he says, I'm persuaded. If a man like that is persuaded, I think we should be persuaded. Yeah? When Jesus was on the cross, as you know, the Romans were killing his body, Jesus said to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They can do all of this to me, but they can't touch my spirit. It's, it's tethered to the Father. That part of us, our spirit, it's just out of reach for man. It can't be turned over to man. It belongs to God. It can't can't be taken from him. Isn't that nice? It cannot be taken from him. And as the scripture tells us, as soon as the body expires, the soul is immediately separated from the body and it's ushered into the presence of God. I know some people believe in you know soul sleep, that when you die, the soul remains in your body and uh, it awaits the final judgment or whatever it's a hogwash. Um, when you when you perish physically, just instantly, the soul is ushered into the presence of God. Paul says, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord now Obviously, we're all going to die. In fact, uh, our death, and, and I mean us individually, it's imminent. It can happen at absolutely any moment. So so seeing that you're going to die, uh, why not go out with a bang? Why not go on, you know go out serving the Lord without fear? But whatever you do, persevere in suffering. and if you are to suffer, suffer for the Lord who holds your life in his hands. Trust him with your life. He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father. (laughs) How did that word get off there? It's supposed to say in heaven. Trust me. Okay. Now, the, the next few passages are among the most difficult, I think, of Jesus' sayings, not because they're difficult to understand, okay, but because we don't like to hear them and we don't want them to apply to us in any way. But Jesus never said anything he didn't mean, right? So first, what does it mean to confess Jesus before men? In the context, it simply means to preach the gospel. It means to confess or to acknowledge Christ to the unbelieving world. And the person who confesses Christ to others, Jesus says, I will acknowledge them before my Father. That is an approving sort of way, okay? He's going to give their name to his dad. So what does it mean then to deny? Well, it means to disavow. It means to disown. So those who disavow Christ to the unbelieving world, Christ will disavow them. He will disown them before his father. They will not find approval. Now, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But it would be like an attractive woman asking me if Shandy was my wife, and I said, no way. In fact, I'm not even married. Isn't that sick? Now, you're appalled at the thought of me doing that, and if I had, (laughs) I would encounter your deep displeasure. If you witnessed me do it, you would disavow me as your pastor, as you ought, by the way, okay? An elder must be the husband of one wife. Uh, In the Greek, it means, essentially, he's he's to be a one-woman sort of man, not a lady's man, okay? You should disavow me. But while you would disavow me for that, we think it harsh for Christ to do something similar for us disavowing him. We're just a people of double standards, aren't we? We are. Now, of course, even as important as loyalty is to one's spouse may be, it just does not compare to what our love and loyalty to Christ should be. And therefore, the consequences of disavowing Christ, it has to be greater. Amen? It has to be. Now, you know, the truth is, when people avoid suffering for the gospel, they, they mo- most often do it because their love and loyalty just is elsewhere. It's just elsewhere. One of the marks of love and loyalty to Christ is, is nearly identical to other things that uh, we, we love and we're loyal to in many ways. I mean, for example, you know, no sports fan in this room is ashamed to talk about their team. Now, you may be disappointed in their performance at times, but even then you can defend them tooth and nail. Uh, you wear their jersey uh, or shirt that represents your team. In fact, you enjoy wearing your shirt to stir up trouble with sports fans of opposing teams. know, it happens here Sunday morning all the time. Uh, Husky fans, Cougar fans, when they're playing each other, you all bring your jerseys to church, okay? Uh, My favorite is when the Seahawks are playing the Raiders. There's two individuals in the church that come in, and they're just flaunting their shirt, their jersey, in front of everyone. Now, I, I like the playful contention, but do we do the same thing for Christ and the gospel? Do we hide his banner or do we, hide, do we hold it high in the face of the devil? It's not playful, of course. The devil is playing for keeps, for blood. His, his minions, our culture is, is playing for keeps. But where are the men of valor who will sport their jersey for Team Jesus? Where is it? Where are the ladies who will stand and fight by preaching the gospel? On the day of Christ, you know, there's going to be three people there. God the Father, Jesus, and you. That's it. Will Jesus confess to his Father that you confessed him to men, or will Jesus deny you because you just denied him before men? You know, there are conditions for his confession. He confesses those who confess him, just as he denies those who deny him. We have these same kinds of standards, so let's not create a double standard. Amen? Let's be consistent. We have to persevere, you guys. We must confess the one who gave it all, that we might live. Let's move on to the next section. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. We're talking about polarization. He says, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He gets this from Micah. He actually says, you may even have to be quiet to your bride who lays in your bosom because of the dangers involved. But there it's about concealing things. In the New Testament, it's about publicizing them. It's different, okay? What a strange passage. You know, if I read this to you uh, in random about two years ago, you would have thought that it was the personification of COVID. You would have, yeah. Yeah. And if we're willing to divide so sharply over COVID and masks and vaccines, wait until you preach the gospel to the wrong person. Just wait. You know, Jesus didn't sugarcoat anything. He begins by saying, don't even think. Don't think to yourself. Now, there were probably some, you know, romantic ideas in the minds of the apostles. You see, they must have been just filled with excitement. Uh, They were with the long-awaited Messiah. They were on the right side of history. Besides, you know, he just gave them authority over evil spirits and all kinds of sickness. But I don't think they were prepared for this. Now, you know, it's true that every one of us is a rebel at heart. Every one of us. We love controversy. We love a good fight, especially if it's with the authorities, but Jesus isn't talking about the authorities now. We're talking about those who are most precious to us. It's changed. And many of you know and have experienced that there is absolutely no hyperbole in Jesus' discussion here. None. None. The gospel divides families. Divides them. And there's, it's in our church. One of my best friends is married to a gal that was banished from her home because she shared the gospel to her mother when she was 16. And until she was old enough to get married, she lived in all the different people's houses in the church, in Calvary Chapel, Pocatello. Another friend of mine, before he was married, had to rescue his wife. When she was 17, she confessed Christ to her parents, who then stole her away to Arizona, to her grandparents' house, where she was locked in their basement, hopefully, they thought, until their granddaughter, their daughter, came to her senses. Now, she managed to escape. She knocked the window out of the basement, and she found a payphone. For some of you, a payphone is a public phone. (laughs) And she called my buddy, and he drove from Idaho down to Arizona to pick her up. And as soon as she was 18, they got married. This is great testimonies and stories from some of these people. And, and this, you know, these stories are minor and compared to the experience of Muslims uh, after they come to Christ, where the sword is actually a reality. It's a reality. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to provoke the wrath of strangers and even the authorities. And, and for some of us, it's it's kind of even fun. But It's altogether different when it comes from those closest to you. There are many testimonies in this church of what happens when you preach the gospel to family, when you get saved. Many, many people would prefer that a drunk or an addict would remain a drunk and an addict than come to Christ. They will minister to them. They'll love them in their addiction and all of their struggles. But as soon as they come to Christ, it's like the worst thing ever. It's very strange. Yeah, But in this statement here, please understand, Jesus isn't saying that he wants to disrupt homes. He just knows what happens when the truth of the gospel is preached. And it's important for the apostles and all believers to know all of this in advance, lest they get blindsided by reality. They just need to know. Jesus is telling the boys, all believers, that pain and sorrow await them, and the source of their pain may very well come from within their own homes. But it's a risk that we must take. We must take it. Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We'll just keep it up, Jesus. kind of a a strange dichotomy in Jesus' words here. And then there's this twisted rationale that we entertain when it comes to sharing the gospel to those in our family. Because the gospel, and I think most of us know that, that, because the gospel has the potential to divide people, especially families, we have a tendency to avoid talking to them about it. But really, to withhold the gospel from them shows a lack of love for them and for Christ. Both. It's by sharing the gospel that we demonstrate our love. Not just for Jesus, but the ones that despise us for doing it. Yeah. If our father, if our father mother, spouse, or child was deathly ill, and we had in our possession the only medicine that would save their life, But we withheld it because we thought it would offend them. It would not be out of love for them that we withheld it. It wouldn't. It would be done in the name of keeping the peace. It would be done because we want to be liked. It wouldn't be about them. It would be about us. What they think about us. What what would happen to the family because of us. Our fear of losing the relationship keeps us from sharing, but it should be our fear of losing them forever that motivates us to share. It's true. The reality is our only hope of keeping anyone is that they receive Christ. And the only way they're going to do that is how they have to hear. They have to hear. Both genuine love for Christ And genuine love for family in this context is demonstrated by preaching the gospel. And of course, the idea here is that if you withhold the gospel from your family, you love them more than you love Christ who commanded you to share. But in the end, you love both of them far less. That's a bitter reality, isn't it? Love is just the supreme ethic, and when it comes to loving the lost, there is nothing more ethical than preaching the gospel to them. It is the most ethical thing to do. If you love them as the Bible defines love, you will share. Let's, let's do some more heart sayings. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will Find it. Now the cross is by far one of the most cruel instruments of death. And to be a carrier of the cross meant that you had, uh, or rather, that you were under a death sentence. You were an enemy of the state. Uh, When we say, you know, carry your cross today, any any number of Western ideas can go through your mind. But there was the, the disciples had a very different take about crucifixion, of which they had witnessed, they had seen it. To take up a cross and follow Jesus was to follow him to death. And indeed, Jesus was calling them to die with him. Jesus died, mind you, so that we could die. And in turn that we might live. So don't misunderstand. Jesus is calling his disciples to the highest level of sacrifice and commitment. This is loyalty at all costs. This is no petty call to sport some jewelry in the shape of a cross and think to ourselves that we've answered the call. Now, there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross, okay? I have one, I just don't wear it. Jesus' words to these boys, it's very serious, it's, it's very sobering, okay? It conjured up all kinds of horrifying images and memories in the minds of the apostles. They were just too familiar with Roman crucifixion of Jews, It was to them the most humiliating and disgraceful and painful way to die. And Jesus was beckoning them to join him in crucifixion. Join me. So finding one's life is living a life for oneself that is independent of Christ's rule, independent of Christ's way, his philosophy. But in the end, they lose everything. But those who deny themselves, as Jesus will say later, it's a life dependent on Christ. They live according to his rule. They truly live. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and then you might live it to the full. But you can't get it until you lose your life for his sake. It's just not available any other way. In the context, it's all about preaching the gospel in spite of the cost. Those who endure persecution and the polarization of it, who love Christ above all else, even loving him more than their own self, must deny ourselves. Now this, of course, all proves to be very difficult for the apostles prior to the resurrection And prior to the coming of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. You guys know this that when Jesus was arrested, what did the disciples do? They fled. That's right. But even worse, what did Peter do? He denied him before men? That's not good, I hear. And then after he died for three days, they were in hiding. Of course, the good thing is that after the resurrection, Jesus restored Peter who had not denied him unto death. But after the resurrection, after Pentecost, when the apostles were filled with the Spirit, what happened to them? I mean, what happened to Peter? I mean, Peter stood before the Sanhedrin who were the instruments that got Jesus crucified. They said, "You, you will stop preaching the gospel. And Peter basically says, you think and do what you like. But he says, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach. And another time, uh, they took him and they beat him. And uh, when Peter left, it says that he rejoiced because he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Very different In spite of the consequences for preaching the gospel, the apostles found life, and I don't know of any of them that regretted it. Amen. He who receives you receives me. I'm running out of time. He receives me receives him who sent me. Now, some might ask, in light of all this persecution for faithfulness, for enduring and all of this stuff, what's in it for me? Uh, Well, it's the same thing that's in it for everyone, okay? Okay. All who have received Christ, both the preacher and the one who receives the message, they get Christ and the Father. Those outside of Christ have no idea what that means. But those in Christ know that that is where it's at. To to have Christ, to have the Father, that's that's everything. And and, and for those that know Christ, those that know what Christ has done to save them, they're, they're abundantly satisfied with this. In Philippians 2, Paul said that everything that that was once gained to him, he counted as loss for Christ. He, He considered every advantage he enjoyed as rubbish compared to the excellence of just knowing Christ. And he says, so I've just cast it all away from me, just so that I can acquire this intimate experience with Jesus. Christ was all in all to that man. He was everything. And that's why Paul really was so excited about introducing people to Jesus. He wanted everyone to have what he had. It was his passion. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. I think this is great. Because everyone who receives, those who are sent out to preach the gospel, receive the same reward. That's great. You don't have to be a prophet to receive a prophet's reward. You just have to receive the prophet's message. That is, a prophet who has been commissioned and sent out by Jesus. You don't have to be this mature believer whose life is marked by years of seasoned righteousness. All you have to do is believe what the righteous preach, and you'll get the same reward. Faith in Christ gives everyone the same reward, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done. All who come to Christ are equally forgiven. They're equally adopted into the family of God. They're equally redeemed and saved. They're all equally declared righteous before the Father, the same standing before Him. uh, They have the same citizenship in the kingdom. This is the reward of the prophet and the righteous man. And it's the reward of everybody that receives their message. Now, some people make a big deal about the apostle or the prophet is one kind of person in the church and the righteous man is another. Who cares? (laughs) Yeah, who cares? Repent and believe on Christ and you receive the same reward. All right? Same one. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of Cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now, real quick, Mark's account of this renders uh, this differently, and so do most translations. Uh, And most scholars believe that Mark has the proper rendering, that there's no difference in all of the uh, ancient Greek manuscripts. So there's no variations, it's just a matter of translation. So let me give you a translation that most scholars agree on. It's from the English Standard Version. He says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You see, the little ones who are given a cup of cold water are Jesus' disciples. And the water is given to them because of that because they're a disciple of Jesus. And in the context, this menial task is probably done to a disciple who is in dire straits as a result of persecution. That's what we've just come out of in the context is persecution. Those who minister in the slightest fashion to Christ's persecuted people, they have a special reward. Now, what that is, I have no idea. I have no idea. I just know that They'll get it, and I know that Jesus is no slouch when it comes to rewarding his people, right? It'll be, it'll be grand, okay? I'm out of time. So, like the apostles, we should preach the word, and we should support those who do so, taking heed to Christ's instructions for the proclamation of the gospel. Look, if you don't preach the message that Christ and the apostles preached, you have not preached the gospel. It's his gospel and it should be preached his way. If you haven't done that, you need to reboot and start doing it his way because nothing else is the gospel. And we should be navigating the various precautions of preaching with wisdom and gentleness, Paul says. Persevering in the face of trouble, and bracing ourselves for the polarization as we seek his reward for his own glory. Amen. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father, I don't believe that anybody wants to be persecuted. I mean, we love controversy. We just don't want to be the object that receives the wrath (laughs) but Lord I I believe that if we're faithful that, that persecution at some level is inevitable and that we should brace ourselves for it we should prepare ourselves for it and then ask for grace to have the courage to just engage to not think so highly of ourselves that we would risk reputation, that we would risk people not liking us. Help us to get over ourselves, especially in this well-insulated culture, and share the truth of the gospel. Or give us grace to do that. And Lord, I pray for those that that feel the conviction to do that, but really... um, have no experience or really an idea of what that looks like, um, I just pray that you would give them courage to ask and, um, and then to do it. So, Lord, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.